Got my uh, 97 pages of notes here. So I hope you guys are ready. Hope you had a good breakfast. No, I'm just kidding. It's only 54 pages. All right. So, uh, as we get started, if you have your copy of God's Word with you today, please open up to Luke chapter 19. If you don't, you're a heathen, but that's okay. Uh, No. Okay, so before we get started, I just want to warn you in advance that try as I might have to shoehorn it in, there's not going to be any Eugene Peterson or Dietrich Bonhoeffer quotes in this week's message. I know some of you will be disappointed. Pastor Chase will be disappointed if he listens to this, and truth be told, I'm a bit disappointed in myself, but soldier on, we must. Uh, So this week in the historical church calendar is Palm Sunday, as many of you are probably aware, which is always the Sunday before Easter or Resurrection Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day that marks Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Date of Palm Sunday moves around uh, each year because the date of Easter is based off of the date of the Jewish Passover, which was recorded on the Hebrew lunar calendar, blah, blah, blah. I don't really know how that works. I'm glad I don't have to know how it works. There are smarter people than me that put it on the calendar. I get to look down and go, oh, Palm Sunday, March 25th, cool. Uh, So in any event, Palm Sunday marks the beginning of what some churches call Holy Week, uh, which is the week starting with Palm Sunday, which is today, and leading up to Good Friday and then ending Easter Sunday. And depending on the church you come from, uh, there might be other things you've participated in, like Maundy Thursday, some people call it Tenebrae, which memorializes the Last Supper, Um, But Palm Sunday marks the beginning of this week, uh, the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and then resurrection. And what a week. What an important week. The scriptures devote a lot of words to this week. Uh, All four Gospels place heavy emphasis on this week. It takes up a whole third of the book of Matthew, a third of the book of Mark, a quarter of the book of Luke, and nearly a half of the book of John is just devoted to this one week uh, in the life of Jesus. So we're at the beginning of that week. Today is Palm Sunday. And the story that Palm Sunday celebrates is the triumphal entry. Uh, It probably says it when we get to the the portion that we're going to look at. probably says it is a header in your Bible. The story is found in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, the four writers often tell the same stories but emphasize different details or highlight different aspects uh, because they were writing to uh, different target audiences at the time. So each account of the story gives us some different insights, and I think in this case, those insights are helpful to understanding what's happening here. Uh, So if you hadn't guessed, based on literally everything I've talked about, we're going to be looking at Jesus' triumphal entry, and we'll start by reading the account in Luke, but we're also going to look at bits and pieces of some of the other accounts. So let's read Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 28. All right, triumphal entry. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God, 
with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Amen to God's word. So most Bibles, uh, as I mentioned, give this passage the heading of something like Jesus' triumphal entry or the triumphal entry, something like that. And we're going to kind of look at what that means, but let's begin at the beginning. So verse 28 says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So let's stop right there. Why was Jesus going up to Jerusalem? Well, we know from the previous chapter that Jesus had been at Zacchaeus's house, you know, the little guy that had to get up in the tree, in Jericho. And interestingly, you want to sing the song? And interestingly enough, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem was basically an ascent the whole way. Uh, so when it says he was going up to Jerusalem, it's correct. But why was he going up to Jerusalem? Well, the answer is twofold. First, the, the more earthly kind of answer is that he and his disciples would have been making preparations for Passover. They would have been making the journey to Jerusalem, just like any faithful Jew, uh, to go to the, the temple and to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. By some estimates, Jerusalem's size would have grown fivefold at this time of year as faithful. People would come to observe this holy remembrance uh, and to offer sacrifices at the temple. But also, as Jesus knew, and he had told his disciples, although they didn't understand, Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to lay down his life and be crucified. But this wasn't the day for that. This was a day of celebration. So let's read the next few verses, starting with verse 29. Uh, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Okay, so kind of an interesting little story there, kind of strange. Uh, but it raises a lot of questions. So Jesus and his disciples were traveling on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And as they approach these little villages, Jesus gives some strange or seemingly strange instructions to two of his disciples. He tells them to go into the next town and grab someone's colt. It says cold here, and when we think of a colt, we think of a young horse, I think. But uh, according to the account in Matthew, it's actually a young donkey, maybe an adolescent donkey. I don't know what the term is because I don't know anything about donkeys or horses. But either way, the disciples uh, were just to go and untie and take someone's animal. In any case, that's sort of like the first century equivalent of carjacking, right? They were, they were told that if anyone had questions, they were just to say, oh, the Lord has need of it. Yeah, I'll bet, right? I, th I think I'm going to try that, actually. Um, one of these weeks, I'm gonna, I happen to know that Cindy, I'm going to pick on Cindy because it's a tradition when I speak. Cindy drives an Acura MDX, and it's nice. I like it. I wouldn't mind having one just like it, only I'd have it in black. But 
Uh, at some point in the future, I'm just going to go grab her keys from the purse. Grab, if she leaves her purse out. If she catches me and asks me what I'm doing, I'm just going to say, oh, don't worry, Cindy. The Lord has need of it. Something tells me that might not go over so well. In fact, something tells me I might find out really quick if Cindy practices concealed carry. <laughs> but anyway, the animal was there just as Jesus had said it would be. And the disciples untie the young donkey. And sure enough, they are asked by its owner, Duh, what are you doing? And they say, the Lord has need of it. Now, Mark's account of the story adds the detail that they say, the Lord has need of it and we will send it back here immediately which is not as very marked to say immediately, which is a nice considerate touch and shows that it wasn't theft. They, the owner gave permission. Uh, so they get the donkey and the disciples bring it back to Jesus and throw some cloaks on it and put Jesus on it. Now, all that's interesting. It seems kind of like a, you know, just a story, but nowhere else in the gospels does it record Jesus doing anything but walking. Why does he suddenly need a ride? And if Jesus is going to get a ride, why would he want a little donkey? I mean, they're little things. Why not something impressive like a big horse? So then as Jesus rode along, the disciples and followers spread their cloaks on the ground in front of the donkey, which is kind of weird. It's something. Uh, first of all, as Mark's account points out, the animal had never been written uh, and it had never been broken. But suddenly Jesus was just able to hop on and without a problem and ride it. And then the disciples laid their cloaks on the ground for Jesus to ride over, which cloaks were kind of a big deal back then. Uh, it wasn't just like being polite uh, or even just like ro rolling out the red carpet like we do for celebrities. This was something more. We find allusions to the practice of laying the cloaks in front of a king in Second, Second Kings chapter 9, where the people laid out their cloaks for the king to walk on. The disciples in the crowds throwing down their cloaks in front of Jesus was a sign of submission, like submission to a king. So it's kind of an interesting part of the story. Let's move on, starting at verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So quite a scene, right? Uh, let's keep in mind that this wasn't like just a few disciples on some back road uh, getting crazy. This was a first century Judean superhighway. This road approaching the city in all likelihood would have been packed with people making the same journey that the disciples were going to Jerusalem for the Passover. And as John's gospel points out, Jesus didn't just have a few disciples with him. It was a crowd who had seen him perform incredible miracles, including raising Lazarus from the dead. And in our passage, from Luke, it describes it as a whole multitude. So we're talking about a lot of people. John's gospel points out that people came waving palm branches, okay? Which is why we call this Palm Sunday. Uh, but why were they waving palm branches? What does that mean? Uh, additionally, three of the gospel accounts all record the crowds shouting the word Hosanna, which is an interesting word. Mark's gospel adds that they shouted out, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And John's gospel adds that the crowd shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Interesting statements. Lots of stuff to examine here. Uh, first of all, let's look at the word Hosanna, which is what the crowd shouted at Jesus. What does that word mean? Or what did it mean to them, I think is the more important thing. We think of Hosanna as a shout of praise or worship. You know, it's in worship songs and things. And it, and it is uh, an expression of worship. But it meant more to them at this time. The word started out as sort of a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew phrase from Psalm 118, which meant something like, 
Oh, save us. Save now. Savior, save us now. But by the time of Jesus, it had also come to mean something more like salvation is here, something more joyful. So you have the crowds basically shouting, in effect, our Savior is here. The son of David, the king of Israel, will save us. And if you think about what that meant to those crowds at that time, living under oppressive military dictatorship of the pagan Gentile Romans, and what it might have meant to the religious establishment and to the Roman authorities, you can begin to see why things reached a boiling point. If you know anything about what life was like for the Jews at this time, they were living under oppressive Roman rule and had been for almost 100 years. It's maybe too complicated to get into here, but let's just say they were really not happy with the situation. And both the common people and the religious leaders would have known all about the many Old Testament prophecies about a Messiah who would deliver them. Also, let's talk about the palm branches. People were waving palm branches, hence Palm Sunday. Uh, but why palm branches? Now, the scholars aren't 100% sh- sure about what this meant, 100% in agreement. But it seems very likely that at that time, in that culture, the palm branch was a symbol of victory. Importantly, palm branches had been a symbol used by Judas Maccabeus uh, a couple of centuries earlier. You'll be familiar with him if you know anything about the intertestamental period, the time between the Old and the New Testament. Judas Maccabeus had established a last independent Jewish state before Rome conquered them, a great hero in Jewish history, and he'd used palm branches as a symbol. It had been on his coins and things. So now you have crowds of people basically acclaiming Jesus as their Messiah and King, waving signs of Jewish independence and victory in the streets and at the temple. So that's part of the reason why we read in verse 39 that the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is dangerous stuff going on here. Not to mention the religious implications. The ordinary people were thrilled it's true they couldn't see the whole picture of who Jesus was, and they must misunderstood the situation, which we'll talk about later, but at least the common people were worshiping God, rightly acclaiming Jesus, the son of David, as their king and Messiah. But the rulers and establishment were horrified. Jesus' response, as recorded in Luke's gospel, is so interesting. When the Pharisees, the religious leaders, always so helpful no, to Jesus... They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But look at what Jesus says in verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. The rocks would cry out. The stones would start shouting and singing and praising God. What an interesting image. The common people recognize Jesus, even if their understanding was flawed. They recognized, at least in part, that their king and Messiah, their savior, was here. Their salvation had come. They had to celebrate. They had to worship God. They had to be excited. God was certainly doing something and they had to respond. Be excited. But the Pharisees and the other religious leaders were blind to it or afraid of it for whatever reason. But yet God was doing something so obvious, so palpable, so overwhelming that the people weren't If the people weren't allowed to recognize who Jesus is, then lifeless stones were going to start shouting and singing praise. That's that's an image. May we never be so blind to what God is doing that we can't recognize when Jesus is moving among us. He does deserve our recognition and praise. So let's look now at the last section of our passage today. 
And when he drew, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What a contrast. What a juxtaposition. It's almost jarring. The crowds are cheering, waving palm branches, praising God, acclaiming Jesus. And then suddenly we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. I'm not a Greek scholar, but according to my fire Bible, which I love, it's a study Bible that my mom got me. The Greek word used here suggests deep sorrow, the heavy sobbing of a soul in agony. After this, we see Jesus entering Jerusalem and throwing the merchants out of the temple and lots of other things. But right now, as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, in the midst of the crowds and celebration, Jesus looks at the city and his heart is broken. Jesus certainly saw many things when he looked at Jerusalem. He has to see the coming destruction of the city, the devastation that would shortly come to the Jews, the annihilation of the temple at the hands of the Romans, the tragedy of it all. He also had to see that this city would soon reject him as well. As he came in peace on that little donkey, extending grace and forgiveness, that offer would be rejected. That the crowds that had cheered him would reject him. That some of those closest to him would betray and deny him shortly. How could he not grieve? Not even for himself, but for them. His heart broke with the reality of how much they needed a savior. Again, it's such a juxtaposition, isn't it? Rejoicing and then weeping. So that's basically the Palm Sunday story. Jesus approached Jerusalem on a young donkey. The crowds acclaim him, wave palm branches and praise God. The Pharisees get upset by all of it. And then as Jesus looks at the city, he weeps for the coming rejection and the coming destruction. So now that we've sort of unpacked the story a little bit, I just want to kind of highlight a couple of points, lessons that the passage brings to mind especially as we begin to reflect on the events of the upcoming week. So the first lesson I'd like to point out is that I believe our hearts should break for the things that break Jesus's heart. As we talked about, the scriptures say that as Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, he wept over the city. I think there are multiple layers to his grief. He wept because he knew what was coming. He knew destruction was coming. He knew grief and sadness and pain were coming. Sure enough, just a few decades later, the city would be a ruin and the great temple within its walls, so central to the lives and the identity of the Jews, would be totally destroyed as Jesus had said it would be. So many would die and so many would suffer and so many would pay such a great price for so long. Rome came in and smashed Jerusalem because of a Jewish revolt. The seeds of that destruction had already been planted and he knew that the people living there were blind to it. And he wept. And he also knew that they would reject him. Likely some of the same crowds that had cheered him and praised him and hailed him as Messiah and Lord this very day would shortly demand his execution. They rejected his offer of salvation just as they had rejected the many prophets of God that had come before. And it broke Jesus' heart. As my fire Bible says, Jesus as God reveals not only his own feelings, but also his father's broken heart over the spiritual lostness of the human race and its refusal to turn to God 
and accept his gift of salvation. How often do we weep over the destruction around us? How often do we see with the eyes of Christ, with spiritual eyes? How often do we grieve for the world around us? Now, we're not standing, looking down at a city and prophesying its impending disaster. But even for us, how can we not grieve for our city, our culture, our nation, our world, for what we are seeing? Broken lives, broken families, a broken culture that has rejected King Jesus' offer of grace. Even those of us who think we live in a Christian bubble can't escape it. If we open up our eyes, how can our hearts not be broken for the lost, for those living in spiritual blindness, for the hopeless, for those that are still blind to the salvation and peace that Jesus offers? God, help us to see with your eyes and truly be broken for the things that break your heart. The second lesson I want to highlight in the story, and I believe that it's the crux of the whole thing, the second lesson is that we need to acknowledge Jesus for who he is. I think we have our own image. We each have our own image of Jesus that needs to be examined. If nothing else, I think that the triumphal entry story highlights this. For example, many people today believe that Jesus was a good man, a wise spiritual teacher, kind of an Oprah philosophy. He said nice things and did some nice things and helped some people and maybe even played the role of a first century social justice warrior who stood up for the oppressed and rattled the cages of the political and religious establishment. There's some truth in some of those statements, but it's a very incomplete image. To think that Jesus was only a good spiritual teacher or only a moral example, a gentle rabbi, but that he never claimed to be Messiah or the Son of God, I, I obviously disagree with this perspective. Jesus, of course, is the is he is the best spiritual teacher and he is the best moral example, but he's also King of Kings and Lord of Lords. To make that point, let's look at this very story. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he rode into town on that little donkey. He knew the prophecies. As Matthew and John point out, this unusual act of riding in like he did was the fulfillment of prophecies, written hundreds of years earlier. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Behold your king. The Jews had no king at the time of Zechariah. These were messianic prophecies. Jesus knew it. The Pharisees probably knew it. Jesus was riding on that little colt for a reason. Jesus wasn't shouting, I am the Messiah, I am your king, I am the son of God with words at that time. Although he definitely did confirm that with words time and time again. But in this case... His actions spoke loudly and clearly to those that would understand. He didn't claim to just be a good man or a moral teacher. He claimed with both words and action that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. On the other side of the coin, 2,000 years ago on that first Palm Sunday, the crowd, even Jesus' disciples, even those closest to him, who had been with him for many years, day in and day out, had their own incomplete image of Jesus. The crowd was thrilled to praise God and acknowledge Jesus on terms that they were comfortable with. They were right, by the way, to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were at least closer to the truth than the Pharisees and other religious leaders, but they were right to celebrate the coming of their king. They were right to throw down their cloaks and wave palm branches and prepare the way for the Messiah. But just a few days later, those same crowds would be disillusioned and demanding that the authorities, they hated 
Roman authorities, the same Roman authorities that they were hoping Jesus would deliver them from, they were asking for this Jesus to be killed. They were only looking for Jesus to be their political deliverer, for political salvation. But that didn't appear to be happening, and they became totally disillusioned. That tremendous shift in attitude over the course of just a few days says so much about human nature. But here's the big point. The crowd was willing to accept Jesus on their terms, but not on his. They wanted an earthly deliverer, earthly answers, now. It's easy for us to be critical of this crowd. But how often have we been guilty of the same thing? Asking God for an earthly solution to a spiritual problem and getting frustrated when it doesn't happen like we want it to. I'll quote my Bible again. Jesus' humble entry is a symbolic action that was meant to show that his kingdom is not of this world. He did not come to rule with force or violence. His refusal to take action as a political leader or military conqueror demonstrates that his kingdom is spiritual. The crowd believed that the Messiah would be a political leader who would finally restore Israel and rule the nations. They failed to understand that the purpose that Jesus expressed about his coming into the world was to bring spiritual salvation and to establish his kingdom and rule in people's hearts. When Jesus did not fulfill their misguided expectations, the crowd shouted, crucify him. Many people throughout history have attempted to make Jesus fit the image that they wanted. Various Christian heresies and sects and cults throughout history have made claims about Jesus to fit their point of view. Jesus was this, or Jesus was that. Even other religions have their perspectives on Jesus. For example, Islam teaches that Jesus was just another prophet of Allah. Hinduism teaches that Jesus is just another god among the millions of gods. Even Adolf Hitler's Germany, which had the problem of being an extremely anti-Christian regime with a Christian population, rebranded Jesus as the perfect Aryan hero, Ubermensch, and got rid of all those pesky Bibles and crosses from the churches. This perversion, of course, has no basis in actual Christian teaching. And there was the whole problem of Jesus being, you know, like a Jew. <laughs> but today, many like to think of Jesus in their own box. Jesus is a Republican, or Jesus is a socialist, or more popular, Jesus as an enlightened teacher, but just one of many paths to spiritual fulfillment. All these views are either incomplete or outright wrong. We must accept Jesus on his terms, unconditional surrender. Who does he say that he is? Jesus didn't come just to be a good moral teacher, although he certainly was that. He didn't come to establish a kingdom on earth, although that will certainly come. This is the heart of the matter. This is why Jesus came. This is the gospel. The Bible says that all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us have sinned. Our sin separates us from God and leads to spiritual death, eternal death. No matter how much good stuff you do, it isn't enough to bridge the separation between perfect God and sinful humanity. But God so loved the world that he sent Jesus, the perfect and sinless son of God, who came into this world in humble circumstances, lived and was tempted in all ways, but was without sin. He was crucified, died and was buried, but rose again and ascended into heaven. He didn't come the first time to establish a political kingdom. He came to establish the kingdom of God in men's hearts. And he's coming again to reign forever. And we can all share in his eternal life and experience the forgiveness of sins. As the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. He is the way, the truth, and the life. This is the promise and the hope of salvation that Jesus came to bring. This is the reality of who Jesus is. And anything short of that, no matter how nice sounding it is, is insufficient and incomplete. I'll close with this. Ultimately, in the middle of all the celebration and the palm branch waving, Jesus knew why he was going to Jerusalem. He was going there to die for the sins of the world. To be delivered into the hands of the religious leaders and then into the hands of the Roman authorities to suffer unimaginable anguish and torture, betrayed and denied by those who claimed to love him and rejected and mocked by the same crowds who had hailed him as king with shouts of Hosanna just a few days earlier. He had tried to tell his disciples what was going to happen, but they couldn't understand or wouldn't understand. They were so sure that Jesus would be the earthly Messiah that would establish an earthly rule that they were fighting over which of them would be the most important person in his cabinet, so to speak. Although his closest disciples had spent the better part of three years day in and day out with Jesus and had seen him perform impossible miracles and had heard him talk about what was to come and that he was going to suffer and die, they just didn't get it. They didn't want to get it. Let us not be like the crowds and the disciples. Let us not be blind to the day of salvation. Let us recognize the hour in which we're living. Just as Jesus wept over Jerusalem because the people were blind to what was happening let us not be blind to what is happening in our day to our city and our country and our world and our families and our friends and our co-workers. But thank God that his grace is still being extended. The offer of salvation is still there. I like how John Piper puts it. What I would like you to do is help you hear Jesus's own understanding, uh, Jesus's own declaration of his kingship. I want you to see how Jesus says, I am your king. And I would like to do it in a way that makes sure you see the nature of his kingship now and the different nature of his kingship when he comes a second time. And I want you to see and feel the difference because the nature of Jesus' kingship now is creating a season of salvation in world history during which you can still switch sides and be saved from his wrath and judgment. There's still time, even now this morning, when you can accept the amnesty that King Jesus holds out to you. And renounce your allegiance to self and success and money and family and physical pleasure and security and whatever else rules you more than Jesus. And you can bow and receive Christ as your king and swear allegiance to him and be on his side with everlasting joy. Though we look back on this triumphal entry this Palm Sunday as the time 2,000 years ago that Jesus was hailed as king and entered into Jerusalem, he's coming again. You see, when Jesus came into Jerusalem this time 2,000 years ago on that first Palm Sunday, he came gently, riding on a humble little donkey. But when he comes again, he'll be on a white horse whose rider will be called Faithful and True. When Jesus came into Jerusalem this time 2,000 years ago, some recognized him in part and worshipped in part. But when he comes again, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. When he came last time, the people were hoping for a deliverer a new king of Israel, someone deliver them, to deliver them from the Romans. But when he comes again, he's coming as king of kings and lord of lords. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Lord, as we reflect this morning on the events that happened 2,000 years ago, your triumphal entry into the city, and the week to follow, Lord, help us to remember to see with spiritual eyes. Help us to remember to see how you see, to have our hearts break for what breaks your hearts, to see the lost, to see the culture, to see the hurting around us. God, I pray that this morning you would also help us to recognize you as king. Not who we want you to be, Lord, but as the king of kings and Lord of lords. Help our hearts to be sensitive, particularly this week as we approach Good Friday and Easter, Lord, to the sacrifice you made for us and the victory you won for us, that we can share an eternal life with you. God, help us to worship with hearts that are fully open, Lord. Help us to worship you for who you are, not who we think you are. God, we give you praise this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, we need you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.